Who wrote Psalm 22? Your Bible says David wrote it, but I have a different theory. And it connects, like all things on this podcast do, to the crucifixion. You'll hear all about it today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. This is Luke Taylor. I'm a pastor and Marvel movie fan, and I say that because last night I was watching the newest Spider-Man movie, which just came out on video. It's a part of something that's called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, aka the MCU, Now, over the past decade, we've watched the rise of this MCU movie franchise. At this point, there's like 24 or 25 movies in the whole series, and they continue to make about like a billion dollars with each passing film. Now, what in the world could sustain a fan base after 25 films? Many film franchises, they peter out after three or four um, to get beyond seven or eight, kind of like the Fast and Furious movies right now. That's still quite an anomaly. But despite being 25 films and counting, well, it's still very popular. And here's why I think it is, because every film tells its own little story. Collectively, they're all telling one big story. But individually, each movie focuses on its own set of characters. It advances its own short-term goals, and they have their own small-scale narrative. And that's very much also how the books of the Bible operate. They tell a small narrative, but it also fits into the much bigger picture of what God is doing across thousands of years in various places to advance the story of salvation. The entire Bible is God's big story of redemption. And it's easy to lose track of that whenever you look down into each small part. And so today we're gonna look at just one little piece. We're gonna look at Psalm 22. You often hear about Psalm 23. It's probably the most famous Psalm of all, but the Psalm right before that, it deserves some attention too. Now, I know that for this week, you were probably expecting a lesson on Ezekiel, and so was I. But then I looked at the calendar, and I realized that the next episode of the podcast, well, it was set to come out right after Resurrection Sunday, more popularly known as Easter. Now, I don't much like the name Easter for it, uh, but I can get into why that is some other time. Uh, But this weekend, we had what is actually known as Easter Sunday, and I had been planning to do an episode on Psalm 22 for that Sunday. So I want to go ahead and stick this episode in right here. Uh, Due to the holiday, I'm even giving the episode one day early. I'm dropping this episode in on Sunday morning. Uh, So why am I doing this episode instead of just another Ezekiel lesson like I'd planned? Well, I'd really been looking forward to doing this episode ever since I started the podcast. It just goes right with the name and the theme of the podcast. And that's how we look at how the whole Bible tells a big story and how every small part of it connects to the cross and Christ. Now, Psalm 22 was written like a thousand years before Jesus even walked this earth. And yet, it reads like it was written by him personally as he hung on the cross. Now, does that sound a little far-fetched? Well, open your Bible to Psalm 22. Let's get started, and I'll show you exactly what I mean as we go through it. And hopefully by the end of today, you'll be saying, as I do, that Psalm 22 was written by Christ himself.
The first thing that you notice as you turn to Psalm 22 is that it begins to the choir master, according to the Doe of the Dawn, a Psalm of David. So officially and literally, this was penned by David. What you're gonna see today is that while this Psalm has obvious reference to the situation going on in David's life, it has an even greater application to the suffering of Jesus on the cross. It actually feels more perfect to read it as the words of Jesus. So what was David going through at this time? Well, I'm not totally sure. Uh, one of the greatest times of suffering for David was back whenever he was exiled from Israel and he was on the run from King Saul. But this, this psalm also reads kind of like it was written while David was actually king. So maybe it refers to when Absalom tried to overthrow David. Perhaps it refers to when David's baby with Bathsheba died. Um, perhaps it was something else entirely. It was just a dry season of life. Well, we don't really know. It's a little vague. But that also helps us to put this into whatever context that we find ourselves in whenever we're in a dry season, that we can pray these words too and relate it to a lot of situations going on in our own lives. So let's read the psalm. It begins with Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And honestly, who hasn't felt this way before at some point that you're praying and you're praying and yet it seems like heaven isn't answering. So again, I don't know what David was going through, but these words, they're likely very familiar to you. Jesus himself said them on the cross. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is quoted 13 times in the New Testament, and nine of those times are during the crucifixion account. And Jesus will quote from this psalm repeatedly as he hangs on the cross. And I notice a couple things about that. One is what comes out of Jesus as he is experiencing the worst possible torment. Um, you might have heard the illustration before or seen it where a pastor holds up a water bottle and, and then he asks what will come out of the bottle if he squeezes it. And the answer, of course, is water. What you are full of is what you will come out of you when you're squeezed. And then the answer turns to asking uh, what comes out of you whenever you get squeezed by life. Like when life is, is going well, we find it all pretty easy to be friendly, nice to people, to be pleasant to be around. But what about when life is tough, whenever you're getting squeezed? Is there some anger in there that gets unleashed? Are we cussing and cursing when we get mad? Or are we blessing and loving despite our discomfort? When someone almost causes us to get into a wreck on the highway, do we flip them off? When you get mad at someone, does something come out of your mouth that you regret saying later? You know, I'm kind of preaching it myself here. It's whenever I'm feeling depleted and squeezed by life that I can surprise myself with what might come out of my mouth. And that's why we need to be full of the spirit so that whenever all of you is spent, there's a spirit inside that's sustaining you and helping you to keep a level head. And what do we see here from Jesus? That he is so full of the word of God that when life squeezes him, what is coming out? It's the word. When you get so crushed and so desperate and so emptied, you often refer, revert back to your most basic, your most primal instincts. And what does that mean for Jesus? Here, he quotes scripture. So, Stay full of the word and stay full of the spirit, because if you don't, whenever life squeezes you, 
something else may come out. Second, notice that whenever Jesus quotes this verse, the Bible actually does something a little different than what it usually does. It gives us the, the Aramaic words that Jesus said. And it's rare that the Bible does this. Um, but once in a while, it will do that. It'll give like a transliteration of the actual words that someone said. And why would it do that? It might not always be for the same reason, but, le- but let's remember some stuff here. So first of all, the New Testament was written in Greek, but the primary language that Jesus spoke was probably Aramaic. Um, for centuries, it had been the common tongue, was that everybody just knew, everybody knew at least two languages. They knew their own people's language, and then they also knew Aramaic. So Jesus, in this moment of despair, as he's calling out to, to question where God is, in this moment, he reverts back to his most basic language, which was probably Aramaic. Um, it's probably what he communicated in the most often. Whenever Matthew communicates this moment, Matthew just has to quote it in the exact way that Jesus said it without even translating it into Greek. Now, why does Matthew do, do that? Um, I would say this. I'd say if you were there, if you heard Jesus say this at this moment, probably anybody who heard those words, they just had them burned into their minds. They, they wouldn't forget how Jesus sounded in that moment. They couldn't forget how Jesus sounded right then and there. And, and for them to even tell the story, it just wouldn't do the story justice to say it without quoting it exactly how Jesus said it. A third note on this verse is that this is the only time in all of the Gospels that Jesus ever talks to God without referring to him as Father. It's the only time. And my theory on why that is, is that Jesus right here, he's experiencing a loss of relationship with the Father in this moment. Because remember, he's taking on the sin of the cross that you and I deserve. Okay, by default, we, because we are sinners, we are lost. We don't have fellowship or relationship with God naturally. Now, Jesus did. He was sinless. And only the cross, only this moment, makes it so that our places are switched. Now you and I can be saved. We can have the relationship with the Father that Jesus had always enjoyed. But in this moment, for the first time in all of eternity, for him, Jesus is experiencing separation from the Father. So for him, I've heard it said this probably outweighed the pain of the nails and the thorns, that Jesus is not just experiencing the physical death of his body, but also the spiritual death that all lost people will feel whenever they're cast into hell. And and Jesus, at that moment, he can't even say, Father, he has to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One last note here is that this quote is an evidence that the Bible is true. See, if the disciples were just making up this whole story of the Messiah, which is what some skeptics will claim, if that were true, then why include this quote? Jesus right here on the cross is questioning God. We see Jesus Christ right here depicted in a way that's totally different from every other passage in the Gospels. Um, as you read the Gospels, he, he was always in control. He was always heroic. He always had the right answer. He never expressed a hint of doubt. And yet here on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This quote couldn't have really helped the disciples' case, the Jewish disciples, as they were making the case for the reality of Jesus. That quote couldn't have really helped them. So why include it in the first place? Unless, of course, it really happened. I mean, why even bring it up? Unless it was part of the story. And it was. And is. 
God, in the person of Jesus, who had only ever known glory in heaven, he had become a man. He had to learn to walk, learn to talk, how to feel pain, to cry, to experience hunger, to experience thirst. And right here, he experienced a more difficult physical trauma than you and I and and anybody that you know ever will. And for the first time in all of eternity, he felt something that you and I will now never have to experience. What it felt like to be forsaken by God. You know, if you went below, if you left a comment uh, or sent an email and you said, hey, you know, Pastor Luke, I don't think I ever want to listen to this podcast again. You know, if you just sent a random comment and said that, um, it would it would barely hurt me because I don't even know you. <laughs> you know, frankly, if you just said, oh, I never want to listen again. Well, if you've never even met me before, if you just know me from my voice here on the internet, it's not like I would be losing a significant relationship. Now, let's say that we did know each other, that maybe you went to my church for a little while and we got to know each other for a few months or a few, or a few years. And then you said you were leaving and you never wanted to hear from me again. Well, see, that would hurt more because now I'd be losing a relationship. Uh, if my wife, Emily, if she said it, <laughs> so my wife, who I've been married to for more than de- a decade now, if she suddenly told me that she was just leaving and she never wanted to hear from me again, I would be crushed. I would probably never get over it. Why is that? Because the deeper the relationship, the harder the separation would be. And Jesus and God, they have been together for all of eternity. And now, on the cross, Jesus is feeling separated from God's love and presence for the first time ever. We can't even fathom the turmoil that Jesus is feeling at this moment. This moment where he says, Not Father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To go back to Psalm 22, let's look at verses 6 through 8. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I'm approaching this psalm as, as in its truest sense, as, as, as if it's the words of Jesus on the cross. Even if Jesus didn't verbalize all of them, these were the kind of thoughts that were running through his mind. Many of you are probably familiar with the famous I am sayings of Jesus, where he says, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and so forth. But many aren't as familiar with this one right here, where it says, I am a worm. This is how Jesus feels on the cross. He says, I am a worm. And there's an extra fascinating thing about this statement. It's what the word worm means in the, in the original Hebrew of Psalm 22. It's the word teleth. Sometimes you hear it referred to a specific type of worm that we call it. Sometimes we call it a tola worm. Um, but this word in teleth, it has two meanings. It can mean worm or it can mean scarlet, as in the color red. And so this worm, the Tola worm, it was called scarlet because it was the worm that the Jews would extract red dye from. Um, They could use that dye in clothing or whatever they wanted, but red dye, it came from the Tola worms. So that's why they called him that because the word Toleith, it it meant worm. It also meant scarlet. Now, let me tell you one more very interesting thing about the Tola worms. So these worms... They actually die when they reproduce their young. For a mamatola worm to reproduce, 
it attaches itself to a branch, and then the babies eat their way out of the mama worm. Um, and of course, that kills the mother. It le- but here's what it also does. It leaves a red splotch on the branch. <laughs> I know you weren't expecting to get this gruesome nature lesson today. That's why I'm kind of laughing here as I say this. But um, the, So the babies eat their way out of the mom, out of the mama worm, and, and it leaves a red splotch behind. And it, this whole scenario, it can actually kind of make you think of the gospel. See, for us to receive our spiritual birth to be saved, Jesus had to die. He had to die so that he could reproduce us, which is, you know, the church. And another interesting fact about this tola worm, so the red spot that's on the, like, say it attached to a limb and it leaves this red blotch behind after the babies burst out. The red spot on the limb from the dead mama worm, it would eventually dry and turn white and then it would just flake off. And that whole process takes about three days. Now, how long was Jesus in the tomb? He was in the tomb for three days. This worm, Talaith, it died. It left a red mark. But after three days, that red mark turned white and it flaked away. In Isaiah chapter 1, God makes this comment. It's Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, Talaith, there's that word again. Though your sins are like Tolaeth, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says, I am Tolaeth. I am a worm. I'm a Tola worm. The gospel in Isaiah 1. It's in Psalm 22. God had this whole thing figured out before he even had Moses write, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There's so many Easter eggs in this chapter. Okay, let me, let me read that set of verses again. But I am a worm, Talaeth, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now, as you hear those words, does that sound like something that Jesus heard while he was hanging on the cross? It sure does. Matthew 27 records these words. In verse 39, it says, For those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Verse 41, So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. So basically here, it's word for word what was in Psalm 22. And the mocking that the scribes and Pharisees do here, it's partially right and also partially wrong. So note here what they are right about. That they said, he saved others. Well, if Jesus was legitimately saving others, then why is he now being put to death? And then they draw the incorrect conclusion from all this because they follow it up with, but he cannot save himself. And that's the part that was wrong. Jesus could have saved himself at any time. As he hung there on the cross... At any moment, Jesus could have looked up to heaven. He could have told God, I'm out. I've had enough. I've lived a perfect life. I don't deserve this. The sinners deserve to go to hell. The rest of the world deserves to go to hell. I don't have to go through all this suffering for them. And if Jesus had done that, you know what? He would have been totally justified in doing so because Jesus didn't have to die for us. It was completely voluntary on his part. He could have ended it at any moment. He would have been justified in doing so. I mean, who could blame him? He wasn't even being punished for his own sins. And this punishment is so severe 
I mean, we'll get into how excruciating it was in just a few moments. But Jesus could have wiped his hands and walked away and let you and I be condemned to hell, and he would have done no wrong by us. He would have just let us be responsible for our own actions. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, who could have called down 10 legions of angels at any moment if he wanted to, he toughed it out and he died for us. As Pastor Tim Keller said it, Jesus got what you deserve so you could get what he deserves. And as I've, heard, as I've heard other pastors say, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross, it was love. Psalm 22 goes on in verses 12 and 13. It says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Now, what are the bulls of Bashan? This is one of those phrases that you just kind of read over and you don't really give it a second thought. Uh, you know, if you're a normal person, you just kind of read on. But if you listen to my Bible studies, I don't want you to read your Bible like a normal person. So whenever we read something like Bulls of Bashan, I just want to take a minute here. Let's dig down. Let's make sure we're all on the same page about what it means before we go on. So first we have to remember that David first wrote these words long before Jesus. So if we go back to the time that David was alive, the Israelites had conquered the land of Israel so they could dwell there. And yet they hadn't quite driven everybody that they were supposed to out of the land. There were some Canaanite strongholds that they had failed to drive out. And these locations, they ended up being a plague to the Israelites for many years to come, uh, such as the Philistines, for example. God was going to help the Israelites drive out the Philistines long ago. But they left like five Philistine cities in an area that's known today as the Gaza Strip. And so the Philistines, they just kind of hung around and then they tormented the Israelites for years. Okay, so Bashan, that's an area that's kind of like the Gaza Strip. Today, we call it the Golan Heights. Uh, you can go there even today in Israel. Bashan was known as a stronghold of the gods. In fact, of all the places in Israel, this was the chief area of demonic activity. This is where you can find the highest concentration of temples to pagan deities. It was a spiritually dark place. In the time of Jesus, it was known as the Gates of Hell. It was near a city called Caesarea Philippi. You probably remember the story of where Peter proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then Jesus said that he would build his church on that confession and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He said it right there at the location that was known as the gates of hell. It was Bashan. It was the Golan Heights. Uh, these are all names for the same place. In this region of high demonic activity, that's known as, it's known as Bashan in the Old Testament. Um, also, that word means serpent, and that obviously that refers to Satan. So what are the bulls of Bashan? Well, this refers literally to demons. So from David's point of view as he was writing this, he was basically saying, the devil is after me. And whatever David was going through, he may have been right, you know, back in his time. But I also feel like this takes a much more literal and more true meaning that Jesus would say it when he was hanging on the cross. Because I think that Jesus, as he was hanging there, I think he literally saw or perceived that he was being mocked by the demons as he hung on the cross. Remember that, so Satan wanted to kill Jesus. Like Satan didn't realize that Jesus's death and resurrection, that that was all part of God's plan because God, he had put it prophesied in the Old Testament, but God had so expertly concealed it in the prophecies you know, that's what, that's one reason that prophecy is not always plain, 
God doesn't reveal too much all at once because he's not giving away the game plan to the enemy before God has a chance to do it. So Satan didn't know that by causing, stirring up the people to kill Jesus, Satan didn't realize that he was fulfilling God's plan. When Jesus walked on this earth, Satan figured that God had made a big mistake by doing this, that God had taken too much of a risk, that God had made himself too weak. Satan thought, just like a lot of the Jews did, that when the Messiah came, that he was going to come and set Israel free and that he would become king of the world. So Satan believed that if he killed Jesus, that he could then stop the plan. He didn't know that killing Jesus was part of the plan. So Satan was somewhat a pawn in God's master plan to save all of humanity. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the demons surround and they mock him. It kind of makes me think of that scene in um, the Chronicles of Narnia. In the second one, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. So in that one, you have Aslan. And that's, you know, if you know anything about the books, Aslan is representing Jesus. There's a part in the books where Aslan sacrifices himself for the boy's crime and uh, for a human boy's crime. And then he dies in that boy's place. And it's all of it was an allegory for the gospel. And if you watch the movie, I love how they depict it in the movie. There's this scene where Aslan, he goes to surrender to the bad guys and he allows them to kill him. And when it happens, he's surrounded by all these bizarre looking creatures. And they're very sinister beings. They're basically, you know, they're basically like demons. They dance and they jeer. They grab scissors. They shear Aslan's hair just to humiliate him. They hoot and they holler. And then the white witch plunges a knife into Aslan's body and they're all just excited about it. And I imagine that Jesus may have seen a similar scene in the spiritual realm as he hung on the cross. Or whether he saw it or not, that that's probably what was going on in the spiritual. That hell was celebrating because hell thought that it had won. Back to Psalm 22 verses 14 and 15, it says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. All my bones are out of joint, Jesus says. Now, David said it first, but it was truer for Jesus. He was not just slapped onto the cross, but he was stretched out upon it. Ropes were probably driven into his wrists to pull him as tightly stretched as possible before the nails were driven in. And when the nails were put into the wrists, um, the, the wrists, they are a nerve highway on humans. And so besides the excruciating pain that it would have caused to have these nails that were driven in, it also basically, by hitting these nerves, it, it caused a paralysis in the arm and the chest muscles. And all of that made breathing extremely difficult. The only way for a crucifixion victim to even breathe, what he had to do was push on the nail in his feet to straighten his legs. And when the legs were straightened, that would push the chest up into more alignment with the arms, and that's when air could finally go into the lungs. So hanging there on the cross every 30 seconds or so, just however often the crucified person wanted to breathe, he had to literally push on the nail in the feet just to stay alive. And the convulsing would actually cause the shoulder joints to become dislocated. Now, I've never had a joint pop out of place, I've heard it said that if that happens, it's one of the most painful things that you can ever go through. And Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, he said that hanging on the cross, it felt like all his bones were out of joint. He also mentions that his heart melted like wax. Another aspect of the crucifixion 
is that it causes your heart to quite literally melt down. Listen to this snippet from Azusa Pacific University. They have a paper called The Science of the Crucifixion. This was written decades ago. It's often cited when people talk about what was happening to Jesus on the cross. And so it says, The decreased oxygen, due to the difficulty in exhaling, causes damage to the tissues, and the capillaries begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluid around the heart, pericardial effusion, and the lungs, plural effusion. The collapsing lungs, failing heart, dehydration, and the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues essentially suffocate the victim. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, which is myocardial infarction, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. As you might have heard before, a crucifixion victim often had his legs broken in order to hasten his death because then then they can't push up on the on the on their feet anymore to get any more air into their lungs and that that would speed up the process of killing them um, so they did that for him after after a while now as you probably know from reading this um, from reading the Bible Jesus did not require this that when the soldiers showed up to do this to break his legs he had actually already expired by then he had already gasped his last breath and the Bible says they plunged a spear into his side um, to ensure that he was dead, basically. And when they did this, that water and blood came out. I think the book of Luke mentions that. Water came out because he had had this cellular breakdown on his insides as his body was suffering the extreme stress of the crucifixion, as we were reading. And yet, um, amazingly, despite all the torment that his body suffered, his body never broke a bone in the whole crucifixion process. The soldiers didn't even end up having to break his legs. And all of that had actually fulfilled another pattern in prophecy. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Passover lamb, which prefigured Jesus, the Passover lamb never had any of its bones broken. Why not? Why did God make it a rule not to break a single bone of the Passover lamb? Well, because it represented that Jesus would not have any bones broken during his, during his entire ordeal on the cross. It was a prophecy there too. We're just going to read a few more verses in Psalm 22 today. So it says in verse 18, or sorry, verse 16, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Another detail of the crucifixion story that was prophesied right here in Psalm 22. And what is David referring to? You know, I have no idea. Um, it's probably not a literal thing, whatever David was going through. He's probably being humiliated by some of his adversaries, and he puts it into this poetic language. However, this language also has a literal fulfillment in the crucifixion of Jesus. Matthew 27 picks this up. If I can read the corresponding verse in Matthew 27, 35, it says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. So that historical detail was a fulfillment of Psalm 22. The soldiers were gambling over Jesus's clothes as he hung there above them. A common practice when someone was being crucified, it was to strip them naked and then to tear and burn their clothes as just a further way to mock and humiliate the person being crucified. In the case of Jesus, though, they didn't do that. It said they actually gambled over his clothes. And that was just a significant enough deviation from the norm 
that the gospel writers, they actually mentioned that detail. It was just something that was slightly out of the ordinary, so they wrote it down. And not only that, it further fulfilled Psalm 22. And one more thing I have to note is some of the first words that I read above. When I was reading those verses, it said, they pierced my hands and feet. Now, this was written, like I said, nearly a thousand years before Jesus and the cross even happened. And what does it say right there in the Old Testament? It says, they pierced my hands and feet. Crucifixion was a form of punishment that was first developed by the Persians and then later taken by the Romans. They were tried to come up with what is the most painful possible way that you could kill someone. And so they came up with this idea of nailing someone to beams of wood using iron nails and then just hanging them there like that until they died. And it was a torturous way to die. It could sometimes even take days. Crucifixion, that's where the word excruciating literally comes from. It's considered to be the worst pain imaginable. Probably the most painful execution method ever invented. I doubt that mankind has ever come up with something worse in all of the years since. So for God to choose this execution method for himself to come into the world at this moment where there's crucifixion being used and to use that as the method to die for all the sins of mankind, to me, that shows the gravity of our sin. We've been doing an Ezekiel running commentary on this podcast, and you know it deals a lot with topics like wickedness, rebellion against God. It uses some heavy words. And yet when I use those words, I'm not even trying to judge ancient Israel. Um, I mean, I'm reading what the Bible says. But I don't, reading that, I'm not even really trying to harp on ancient Israel. Yes, what they were doing, up, you know, during Ezekiel's time, it was terrible. Their hearts were far from God. But it wasn't just their sins that put Jesus on the cross. It was my own. He was dying for me. And every day that goes by, I realize how much more that I needed it. I, I don't blame the Jews or the Romans or the ancient Israelites I don't blame them for what God went through 2,000 years ago because I know it was also me and my sins that brought it about too. The cross is an indictment of every single member of humanity. Each one of us shares in the blame. Each one of us looks at it, the worst execution method ever devised by man, a fleshly body nailed to a wooden cross, and we see exactly what our sins deserve and exactly what it took to redeem us. The execution method of David's day was by stoning. You know, like I said, it was the Persians who came up with crucifixion. And when did they come up with it? They came up with it about three or 400 years before Jesus was born, long after the time of David. So what was David even talking about here when it says that his hands and feet were pierced? It makes me wonder, like, what was David even going through that he thought to write that? I mean, whatever it is, whatever he, however bad he thought it was, it was nothing compared to what Jesus himself would do centuries later. This was figurative language for David and prophetic language. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it was literally true of what Jesus would later actually go through. I read a story this week of a man who attended a church service and Psalm 22 was read and then it was preached on. And the man attending this service, he was not saved, but, you know, he was familiar with the story of the cross. So the man just assumed that the words of this psalm, he just assumed that they were things that were said by Jesus. 
And he was quite surprised to find out later on in the service that no, these words were actually written hundreds of years before Jesus, that the words were a prophecy. And according to the story I read, he ended up giving his life to Jesus that day. Psalm 22, it's an amazing piece of literature. It's an amazing piece of prophecy. It's an amazing illustration of what our Savior went through on the cross. And I hope after listening to this, you'll agree with me that Psalm 22 was written by Jesus himself. close down in a few minutes. Um, if you have a question on this chapter, just leave a comment or shoot us an email. It's crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. And I actually have a couple of mailbag comments from our past few episodes, but I, I just want to actually save those for now. I want to leave today's lesson here. Um, today was kind of a solemn lesson. We're, we've been talking about the cross. We've been talking about the sufferings of Jesus. And I would rather just leave us with those thoughts instead of getting distracted by by some mailbag thoughts. So I'm going to save those for our next episode. And I'm really looking forward to giving those responses um, that, that I received and then responding to those responses. So we'll do that next time. As I said before, this week, it was originally going to be an Ezekiel lesson. And then I realized what week it was. So now I'm behind in my Ezekiel lessons. The next couple episodes are going to be over Ezekiel. And we'll cover chapters 6 and 7 So look for that one to drop next week on Monday. Uh, One more fun thing I want to mention about the Marvel movies. Each film is full of scenes or moments that connect back with the previous film, or they'll set up future films. Like virtually all their movies do this. And, And these little moments, they're called Easter eggs by the fans. Because sometimes it's just a line here, a background element there, and you have to kind of be on the lookout for it to catch what the writers are slipping in. And you can find these Easter eggs in all kinds of movies, not just in the MCU, um, but they're all throughout the MCU films. Another term for Easter eggs is references. And it's the same idea I had with this podcast. That's why I call it cross-references. I want to search out in the Bible for all those Easter eggs, those references that enhance your Bible reading and cause things to jump out at you as you go through the Word. And I'm trying to make your Bible time a richer experience after every episode of this podcast that you listen to. And that's what I hope we've done today, that I've given you a huge Easter egg for Easter Sunday. I mean, Resurrection Sunday. Well, thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor, reminding you that Jesus didn't just write Psalm 22, but he lived it. And three days later, he lived again. He lived again.